Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Pablo Maurer of The Athletic, who talks about his phenomenal new story on George Best in the NASL. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Jordan Angeli, Jeremy Ibobasi, along with many others. So check those interviews out if you haven't already. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Pablo Maurer on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Mic'd Up podcast, which you should definitely check out. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing great. Happy to do it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit mostly looking ahead in this podcast because there's still a little soccer that's been going on earlier in the week, but it's started to not happen as much around the world, but it's coming back because we've got UEFA Champions League starting back up on Friday with two games, two more on Saturday. These are round of 16 second legs that didn't get done before COVID hit. On Friday, we've got Juventus Lyon and Juventus is down. 1-0 heading into this one, technically going to be at home, no fans, but is this a situation in your mind where Lyon could pull off the surprise? I mean, it kind of dovetails as well. We'll talk about Barcelona at some point where you do kind of expect these bigger clubs to overturn the results from the first leg, whether it was uh, Napoli in in Barcelona's case or Lyon in Juventus' case, but because of the inconsistent performances from the so-called bigger club, you just can't really trust it. But you look at Lyon's league record before this all stopped. 28 games, 40 points. They had 11 wins and 10 losses and 7 draws in the league. It's not been an impressive side this year. A lot of the core that's kind of built out this Lyon side for the last few years has kind of gone away. They've been sold and they just haven't replenished to a degree where they're a strong Champions League team. They're really a Europa League team at best. So they can hang on to this lead because Juve at times have looked constipated in the attack and they've not been able to create chances and score goals. So maybe Lyon can pull it off, but... You just have to think, given the strength of Juventus, given the strength of Cristiano Ronaldo, that they're going to finish this job. And this is a pretty extreme example here of a team that is in playing form, has played through Juventus. Serie A just ended last weekend. They won the Scudetto again, as they always do. And Lyon, which the government shut down the Ligue 1 season... And the Lyon president, who I still want to get in the podcast, uh, Jean-Michel Olas, because he's a very interesting dude, has invested a ton of money in women's soccer, but he also runs the club, owns the club on the men's side too. He went ballistic toward the French government for a period of weeks, just calling them out publicly. Uh, He was going to sue at one point. Uh, Not a happy camper about the way the French season never ended up finishing. And... I know that they've they've had some warm-up games, Lyon, but I, I think you're asking a lot of a team to play against a Juventus team that has been playing straight through here in a game with much higher stakes now. To counter that, 
Mauricio Sarri did say towards the end of the Serie A season that Juve were getting tired because uh, Serie A had the most games left to play of any league that restarted post-COVID. I think they had 13 league matches in total that they played in something like a month and a half. Juve also had a Coppa Italia final as well. And it is, as you said, the ultimate kind of contrast in this competition because Juve have played all those games and Lyon have played one competitive game since March 4th. And that was the Coupe de la Ligue final against uh, Paris Saint-Germain, which of course, it's a domestic trophy available in France and so Paris Saint-Germain won it on penalties uh, six to five but Lyon having played one competitive game it's just it's an impossible ask so you'd have to think that Juve with more match fit players with not having had this huge break can get it over the line but this is the ultimate tired versus rest argument so is Lyon fresh and well rested going to be able to maybe defend for 90 minutes and keep a clean sheet I I can't see it yeah other game is probably a a little bit the headliner in terms of two just enormous teams. Man City 2, Real Madrid 1, heading back to Manchester for this one. And a lot of people are assuming City's okay, they're going to go through. But wait, this is Real Madrid. They just won La Liga. Uh, I am not going to write off Real Madrid in this game. I'm just very curious to see how the matchup works out. If you go back to leg one, and obviously a lot has happened since then, you know, I think pretty poor from Real Madrid to to be in this situation where they're actually down a goal going back because they led in the first game. But what do you see happening here? Man City's a team that we thought could win this tournament, but nobody's really talking about Real Madrid much about winning this tournament, and they've only won four of them recently. Right. And you look at their record post restart they won 10 and drew one to run away with La Liga. They were amazing towards the latter stretch of the season, whereas we saw the usual inconsistencies for Manchester City. And I just don't... I mean, actually, right now, according to the betting odds, they're co-tournament favorites with Bayern Munich, Man City. That doesn't make any sense to me, whereas Real Madrid are 19-1. to Just because they have to go play in a way leg at Man City, it's in front of no fans, so it's not like there's a huge home field advantage. Like, in a normal scenario, you would say... A team having lost a home first leg going away, that's a really big deal because you're going into a, the cauldron of an environment and that's really hard to overturn. They're playing in essentially neutral venues. Yes, they have to get on a plane and fly to Manchester, but I just don't know why Real Madrid are these huge underdogs and Man City are the favorites to win the tournament. If Real Madrid won the game 2-0 or 2-1 and they take it to extra time, like would it be that much of a surprise? I don't think so. Real Madrid have been amazing since restart. They have incredible pedigree in this competition and the quality of the football they've played post-restart has been amazing. They don't even need Gareth Bale. He wasn't even named to the team. The one thing you'd say is a big deal for them is no Sergio Ramos, so if they need late heroics, he's out because of red card suspension. But I think this game to me is a true toss-up, 50-50. The range of outcomes for me, everything is in the realm of possibility for me. If you remember, too, in the first leg, Pep Guardiola did one of his kind of mad genius things tactically where he had Gabriel Jesus start out wide. Yeah. And and everyone, when the lineup came out, was kind of like, what is this? It actually worked pretty well, you know? And Pep's yeah. pretty good at, at finding spaces you know, and studying things. He's had a lot of time to study for this one. So I wouldn't be surprised at all to see another sizable surprise in, in who he starts and in the tactics he uses. And I remember that it was Bernardo Silva who ended up playing up front and Jesus playing from what he actually ended up scoring. But I've more found that these 
mad genius kind of huge tactical shifts in the last moment have more been a source of him kind of overthinking, overthinking it and, yes. and, and, and getting it wrong. <laughs> like, I don't think for the most part these work. I remember watching that first leg and thinking, well, why... They need a center forward. They're trying to ping the ball up to Bernardo Silva. Like, they need something. And eventually the game turned. But I actually thought, as you said, Real Madrid led in that game. It was two goals in the final quarter of an hour. And I thought from there, City had the had the platform. But for the first hour, I thought Real made it really difficult for Man City to play. I really don't think that tactic worked very much. It just did eventually. But I, I agree with you. I think particularly given how we've seen... Man City flip and flop their rotation so much during the post-restart period. Pep's wheel of rotation was spinning at full during the post-restart period. For me, the, the biggest tactical choice I think would be like the biggest indicator of where he's at is who starts next to Americ Laporte at center back. Because you know Laporte's going to be that first choice, but is it going to be Stones? Is it going to be Otamendi? Eric Garcia has really been the one who's been most preferred. He's an academy product. Is it going to be Fernandinho? Who's going to be the player that plays next to Laporte? Because all year long, the conversation around City is they don't have the full complement of center backs that they need to compete at this level. So who is the one that Pep Guardiola trusts in this match? And I think, too, there have been enough, and I put this in quotes, Enough, quote, failures by Pep Guardiola in the Champions League knockout rounds over the last few years. And obviously failing for him is Bayern going out in like the semis. Mm -hmm. He kind of needs to win one at some point here. Otherwise, this is going to become something of a bugbear because you're right. This term overthinking has gotten attached to Pep Guardiola in Champions League knockout games. Hasn't won it since 2011 and the thing that's held against him is he hasn't won it without Messi. And he's tried to go to Bayern Munich and win it. Obviously, this is the trophy to win for Manchester City. Although, I do kind of wonder, will the treatment of the winning of this trophy in particular be different than, let's say, winning a league title? Because the league titles that were won in the post-restart period were almost three-fourths based on a normal scenario. Whereas this is a full knockout competition played at neutral venues. Is this the same to you if you go and win this final as it would be if you have to go away to you know Bayern Munich and away to Barcelona and away to all these places that's what the Champions League is is you have to go and grind out two legs as opposed to a single elimination match at a neutral venue if you're asking the question should there be an asterisk next to (laughs) whoever wins this different Champions League situation where by necessity you're having a single elimination eight team tournament starting next week for me no Mm -hmm. I don't think this will be or should be viewed as lesser than now another thing that you and I were talking about before we started recording here is once we see single elimination champions league are fans gonna be like we like this better than two-legged I think so I because I I was we were we're taping this on a Wednesday and I was watching the Inter Milan-Hitafe match in the Europa League. The other three matches on the day were second legs that were continuations, but because Inter Milan were never able to get a home match off because of the virus, they just played a single elimination in the home of Schalke, which is where the Europa League is going to finish. So I was watching it, and it had a totally different feel. And yes, it was on at the same time as the Manchester United last game, which was 5-0 from the first leg on aggregate, so there's nothing on the line there. But it just felt different where it's not like... 
you know, Hitafe have a second leg to turn this around, or there's kind of like that you can fall back on the next game or fall back on away goals. It's no, this one game determines everything. And I just imagine that once we get into the quarterfinal stage and we see single elimination Champions League games and the whole, all the narrative that plays out over the course of two weeks plays out over the course of 90 minutes, I think that's going to kind of remind you of why you love World Cup single eliminations and why you love international tournaments that have single eliminations because there's just so much more on the line in every touch of the ball than there is over two legs where, yeah, if you turn in a bad performance, you can kind of fix it in the second leg. And we've seen teams in the Champions League do that. We kind of agreed that as much as we'd like it potentially in the future, that it's not going to happen. That, (laughs) you know, just for pure money's sake, there's going to be, you know, the two-legged elimination rounds are are going to continue just because you're talking about uh, more airtime, more money, all that stuff. Let's look to Saturday. Two more Champions League round of 16 leg twos. Bayern, Chelsea. Bayern up 3-0 in this one. They're going to be at home, Bayern Munich. Christian Pulisic, as far as I know, not involved in this game. I don't see how he would be able to make a... He's been ruled out for four to five weeks, so he, he, yeah. he is, he is not, he's not going to play in this game. So this could be fun because I guess Chelsea's just going to come out guns a-blazing, but we're not really expecting Chelsea to get back in this, are we? No, especially considering the injury and even transfer status that they have with some of their players. You mentioned Pulisic, Espelicueta got hurt in that game. Loftus-Cheek entered that game injured. Willian is kind of in the middle of a transfer saga. He was already nursing an injury. You can't imagine he's going to try and press on and, and really get into a game against Bayern Munich. There's been reports about how Chelsea are taking some of the academy kids to fill out their bench. So the only argument you can make is almost you go the opposite of what you think, which is just full youth. Right, just throw Tammy Abraham and Reese James and Callum Hudson Adoy, and just with youthful legs press and press and press and press and hope that you can get an early goal and maybe the game becomes interesting. But you also open yourself up to Bayern Munich ripping you apart, which you know what happens. So you just can't envision a scenario where Bayern don't get one, and in that case, Chelsea would need four or five, and you just can't see them going away to Bayern Munich and doing that. Last game, Barcelona won, Napoli won. Bit of a surprise that Napoli got one in the opener, but they did. You know, Napoli's a weird team, man. Like, they they have talent, but they had a, a pretty rough season. And you're it's just hard to know which Napoli team you're going to get. But Barcelona comes into this basically in a bit of turmoil after the way the, the season ended in La Liga and just Messi making the decision after they got eliminated from contention to win of going all in against the the people who run FC Barcelona. And, you know, I follow him and his wife on Instagram. You know, they had a nice, appeared to be a nice vacation stretch with uh, Luis Suarez and, and family and, and got a chance to relax. So I, I'm imagining that Messi is not as upset right now as he was at the end of the season. But you also feel like that could get rekindled pretty quickly in in the wrong circumstances. Of course, especially if things start poorly, if Napoli get an early goal or Barcelona are finding it kind of repeatedly frustrating to not be able to break teams down because that's actually, they do have a, a massive vulnerability at the back, but it's really more that they don't, you look at their goal score tally, it's not what you would expect from a Barcelona team. And those comments after the game that you referenced where he kind of, kind of lit into the club is, well, I want to see this club at the standard to win the Champions League. 
and we're not even at the standard to win La Liga. So, although those are kind of one and the same because in order to beat Real, like it's beating Real Madrid basically, and that's the same in both competitions. But you just see that frustration. I think Messi just kind of feels like this team isn't good enough. Like it just there isn't enough around me to get the job done of needing to win this game against Napoli and then three more after that. But as you said, I just don't think Napoli are a good enough opponent to take advantage of that. Just because you look at their their form guide, the last five games of Serie A, it's a green check and a red X and a green check and a red X and a green check and a red X. Like, it's just so inconsistent. You just can't imagine them going to the Camp Nou without... I think if they had kept a home clean sheet and had the away goals tiebreaker, you knew for certain heading into this, they'd have a real chance. But having given up the one goal and, and, and finishing out a 1-1, it's hard for me to see Napoli doing this. Yeah, same here. Uh, let's talk real quick about the MLS Thursday night semifinal. We're recording this on Wednesday late afternoon before the first semifinal, Philadelphia against Portland. We're coming out on Thursday morning. That game will have already happened by then. But Orlando, Minnesota surprising teams to be facing each other in the MLS semifinal. <laughs> I don't think too many people were expecting this one, but a lot of ties between uh, Adrian Heath, former Orlando coach. Now he's the Minnesota coach, Kevin Molino playing up in Minnesota used to be in Orlando and just different approaches publicly from kind of how Minnesota says they're being viewed by everyone heading into this. We don't get any respect versus Oscar Pereja and his team like just saying, look, we're going to come out and try and get results and getting them. And it was interesting that Orlando win against LAFC. In the end, I thought Orlando more or less deserved the opportunity to go to penalties. They got the late goal to equalize. But I still feel a little bit like Oscar Pereja is the star even more than Nani or, or the other players on Orlando City. Which is not to say that Nani hasn't been incredible in this tournament. I think he's clearly delivered in big moments for Orlando City, and he's the reason why he's their designated player. But I agree. I just think the change that they've undergone, what they needed to have happen at Orlando City was a complete top-to-bottom change of the culture, right? Just because they've tried so many different things. They've all failed spectacularly. They constantly change what they're trying to do. And it just, from the outside, did not look like a well-run club. And I just think you bring in Luis Muzi to run the soccer operations. And there was an article that came out today from MLSsoccer.com's Tom Bogert that was essentially... When I took over, the first thing I knew I was going to do was eventually hire Oscar Pareja. And I imagine he was kind of, they're, they're friendly, so I imagine while he's at Tijuana, like, all right, this goes pear-shaped, I'm here for you. And I just think you need to start with a figure like that to really start to go about the rest of the rebuild. Because yes, they do need to maybe bring in a more dynamic set of designated players and really build out a stronger roster if they want to you know, regularly compete for MLS Cups. But you don't even get to begin with that kind of project until you find the right guy to lead the organization. And Muzi is theoretically in charge of Pareja, but we all know that Pareja is the figurehead that changed the dynamic of the organization. So I just think you can tell, even without really having had a chance to really imprint his desires on the roster, how much they've changed. So you're right. I think Pareja is the story here, but also... Give credit to Adrian Heath. I mean, they pulled yeah. off an incredible upset against Columbus when a lot of people thought that Columbus was just going to romp through to the final, beat them on penalties. And then I think the tactical display of the tournament 
was Minnesota's performance against San Jose. The way that they figured out a way around the man marking, the way that they had the center back, Michael Boxall, carry the ball into the San Jose half, basically unmarked because the man marking system doesn't account for center backs. Like, he, of any manager that I've seen, has figured out how to play the man marking system of San Jose and is willing to take chances. So, I think he deserves a massive amount of, of credit for getting uh, his team to this point as well. Yeah. You look at Adrian Heath, it's been an interesting career for him coaching in MLS. I thought when Orlando let him go that he might not get another job in the league. Mm-hmm. He did in Minnesota, and then you thought he was going to get canned in Minnesota with his staff, and they were sort of hanging by a thread. And I remember early last year, if they had gotten off to a bad start, he probably would have been. Yeah. They end up making the playoffs. And here they are making a run in this tournament, and they've done it without Aikopara, who I think is the best defender in MLS. And I'm just very impressed by that. And it, it shows that coaches can make turnarounds too. So before we get to Pablo Maurer and our interview there, I want to talk a little bit about another interview I did a couple days ago with you. Um, the interview was not with you, but I want to talk about it with you. It was mm-hmm. with four people with CBS Sports, who are part of their Champions League coverage. And this was uh, an interview I did with Sean McManus, was part of the group. He runs CBS Sports. Jeff Gertula, who runs the CBS digital side. And Pete Radovich, who is the top producer, who's doing all their Champions League stuff. And Kate Abdo, my old friend from Fox, who was also on Turner. She's worked in a bunch of different countries and speaks like five different languages and can work in them. This was about a 15-minute interview the other day, and I'm just going to share with you some of the things that I learned in that interview and kind of hear your take on that, because I know you care about this stuff, too. A couple Mm -hmm. things that stood out to me were Pete Radovich, the, the lead producer, had basically three weeks to get all of his studio talent lined up, and, and most people have seen the group of talent that he got, which I think is pretty impressive. Uh, you've got Roberto Martinez, Michael Richards, Peter Schmeichel, Alex Scott, Rude Hulett, uh, Jamie Carragher. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. you know, Kate Abdo. It, it's a pretty impressive lineup there. And, and the fact that they're able to do that in three weeks, not bad either. It was interesting that Radovich used the terms when I asked him what they were looking to provide in their broadcast, and he used the terms credibility and authenticity. I love the term credibility, and I think they've done that with their talent hires. Authenticity, I'm much less a fan of as (laughs) as a word when it comes to soccer, because I don't know what you mean by authentic, because one person's authentic means... Latinos, one thing, you know, for someone authentic means English or British or, or, you know, it's just, to me, it's all, it often comes across as not American, yes. uh, which I get my hackles raised. And, and I, I think it's worth mentioning that, and this isn't a CBS call. I like the, the people they've hired for this, but there was an awful announcing story that literally used the term, uh, there are no token Americans on this group. Uh, that CBS hired and uh, basically made it sound like no American is good enough to do this, which I strongly disagree with. I assume you're in that camp as well. Totally agree. And I I think even as much as the Bleacher Report coverage did get criticism, 
I thought Stu Holden was a real star from the coverage that, I mean, it was kind of the, the vehicle was built around him and I thought he did really well. I think Tim Howard has done, has done well. I think he actually was better when he was still playing with Everton and would occasionally do analysis games with Arlo White uh, on play by play uh, for NBC. I thought he was exceptional in those environments. So yeah, I mean, there are American talents that can do this American hosts that can do this American play by plays and analysts. Like there are good people to do this. Now that CBS, I think we're kind of in a little bit of a hole here, as you said, with three weeks to prepare. And if you're going to get European talent, you have to do the show in Europe because you're not going to bring people over, have them, as you said, quarantine for two weeks and then go on air in a New York studio and also quarantine themselves in New York for a month while the tournament is going on. So you basically had to take the show to them. Otherwise, you weren't going to get you know people with that Champions League pedigree. And that actually, I think, is something that was missing in the Bleach Report coverage is, yes, you do want to have an American flavor, but there are people connected to America that have played in the Champions League. People like Thierry Henry, who have gone and played in MLS. People like Jurgen Klinsmann, I think, could have been a good... Uh, I think he's good on television, who, who, who could have gone and done something like that. So I at the same time, I, I agree that I think you need to bring the credibility of the Champions League. We're covering the Champions League. You're not just covering soccer. But also, like, having Americans, as you said, does not make it inauthentic. It doesn't make it token. And ultimately, you're covering for the United States. The United States should have some representation in some way in the studio show. And I think as the CBS you know, brand develops and, look, they're new into soccer, they've developed it in a month. But I think as they develop, they will incorporate American voices. But for the moment, I think they've done as well as they could possibly do. And the thing to me that I've that I always think about is just... Other sports, you don't think about how you cover it. You just cover it, right? You cover basketball, right? Whether it's the inside the NBA way or the, or the ESPN way, like you just cover it as, for the sport that it is. You don't have to dress it up. You don't have to make it different. than like Just cover it well. Cover it like you'd cover any other sport, which I think is what they're going to do here just based off the talent that they've named. Yeah, and that brings me to another thing that I, I asked Pete Radovich, the guy who's the top producer for this. What I said to him was, and I think you, Chris, agree with me on this, as most U.S. fans might, that the gold standards in U.S. English language coverage for the Men's World Cup have been ESPN in 2010 and 2014, and for European club soccer, the gold standard has been NBC with the Premier mm-hmm. League. And, and I asked Radovich, one, if he agreed with that. He basically did. And what that meant for what CBS might be doing. And his response to that was he said that you have to treat fans as knowledgeable and not talk down to them. And I I wasn't actually doing it, but I was sort of inwardly fist pumping as I heard this because that's the way I've always wanted soccer to be covered. And in, I think it's been done really well by, by ESPN in 2010 and 14. It's been done really well by NBC but it hasn't always been done that way. Another thing that has stood out to me over the years, and part of this comes from having worked in television for some of this stuff, sometimes I feel like American talent gets criticized when things don't go great, but I think more often when that has not gone as well as it could have, it's more because of the the production side, the producers. Like, here's an example. For me, Fox's World Cup 2018 coverage on the men's side, which which I was a part of, uh, and Turner's Champions League coverage struggled at times, not because of the talent on the air, but more because of the producer's lack of soccer experience. 
because both those groups brought in producers from other sports. And what was interesting was Radovich has done a lot of sports, a wide variety of sports. He's won a ton of awards. He told me he has not done soccer before as a producer, but he has a long history in the sport. He said it's been his favorite sport since he could walk. He was a goalkeeper. He said it was his first love. He's consumed a lot of soccer television and production from the U.S. and from Europe. I think he's got a Croatian background. And he's saying all the right things that I think should produce a good broadcast. So, like, I'm excited about that. Another couple of things that stood out, I asked straight up, I was like, you know, CBS, you're going to be putting these on a pay streaming service, these games, these UEFA Champions League games, Europa League. But there's fans who are going to be able to pay nothing to watch these games in Spanish if they want to in the U.S. And my question was like, what can you do to make sure people actually pay to watch the game on CBS as opposed to just watching it for free in Spanish? McManus's response, it's a really good question without an easy answer, obviously. We think the quality of the coverage and the quality of the team we put together will be a factor. They do have a free month for CBS mm-hmm. if you're just starting out. So you can watch this tournament for free if you haven't used CBS All Access before. He thinks that'll get people in the tent. And he said, I think uh, we think people will see the value of having every Europa and Champions League event available We think that's a really good value proposition for the soccer fan. Uh, Jeff Gertula, who runs the digital side, was saying the event is top-notch. We brought in an announcer team that we think will be top-notch, and it's about putting the best soccer content out there itself, but also putting the right content around it. So I'm curious to see what else they do in terms of Mm -hmm. shoulder programming on CBS. Uh, they, you know, Gertula said that he wants the consumer to feel like when they do pay, they get more out of it than what they put in. So that's all interesting. You have any thoughts on that? You have to really see CBS All Access as a valuable proposition beyond just sports. Because, yeah, they have the rights to NWSL, but there have to be shows and entertainment where I think people don't mind paying for ESPN Plus if you're a soccer fan right now just because you get so much, right? You get sports beyond soccer, you get college sports and all that. Um, But it's just, it's too overwhelming of a good product to not want to pay for it. And I think that's what it's going to have to be the same. The other thing you have to consider too is like the difference in delays. If you have a cable package versus streaming, like it will probably, you'll have the most live version in theory watching on cable. So there are those elements, but ultimately it just comes down to you want to understand what the people are saying. If you don't speak Spanish, yes, you can kind of get behind their enthusiasm, but you want to be able to understand what the people are saying. So that ultimately is their biggest value proposition. The question is how many people are going to be up for it, and that ultimately decides the success of the thing because CBS was reportedly paying close to $100 million a year uh, for this property, and the only way they make it work is if there is an equal number of signups for CBS All Access. So uh, this is the only way that it works. I, I do want to get back to your previous point, though, about you know the World Cups from ESPN and the, the gold standard of coverage. I think the mistake that sometimes gets made is you don't, as you said, tr- treat the soccer fan with respect. Assume that they understand. But also, I think there's a, this thought that we need to dumb it down. I remember when, uh, was it the 2012 Champions League final where they had like Kurt Menefee as the host and they did a football versus football segment. Here are the differences between America. And it was like just cliche. And it's basically, if we're putting a soccer match on the Fox air, 
like the over the over the air channel they're going to be people watching that don't have a deep understanding of the game so we need to dumb it down and explain this to them and to do so we're going to lower the quality of our content so that they can understand whereas i think it's the exact opposite where let's say you're showing up as a newcomer to the sport you want to kind of understand on understand it on the level that you understand other sports and that okay maybe you won't understand if you break down let's say in that 2012 final Chelsea's run and oh man they went away to the new camp and uh they were down to 10 men but Fernando Torres got in behind and you don't know the stories of how Fernando Torres arrived at Chelsea and how it was a huge bust. You don't know the story of why Barcelona losing that semifinal was such a disaster, why the possession figures told this story, and why it's unlikely that Roberto Di Matteo has let, like, but they will eventually get there. And the only way that they do is if you treat them with the respect and give them at least some, like, one fact, right? They leave your studio coverage with one fact, knowing more about these teams than they entered it. And I think that's how ESPN and NBC have built the quality of their coverages. One thing at a time, you understand Brighton. And one thing at a time, you understood Cameroon at the World Cup. Because they treated Cameroon as if they were covering the United States, right? They weren't, you don't just ignore them because they're another country. You treat them with the same respect as if they're a participant in the tournament. You wouldn't ignore the Toronto Raptors in the NBA playoffs because they're in Canada, right? You treat them with the same respect in the NBA finals as you would any other team. And I think that ultimately is what makes good soccer coverage to me. Maybe some producers and executives would just agree but to me it's you treat it with the respect as if everything in this competition is worth covering and worth knowing for the fan who is even trying this for the first time which by the way for a pay service makes even less sense because people who are going to pay for this are your diehards so yeah. I think you have to kind of tailor coverage to diehards in this instance yeah there was an interesting tweet I saw last week from Dan Orlovsky the ESPN NFL analyst and his tweet was basically saying I am watching this MLS tournament and I'm learning a lot from Taylor Twelman and I'm glad that they're approaching it this way because I like learning more and this is causing me to engage more and more. And that stuck out to me. It's basically what you're saying here, Mm -hmm. uh, which is treat people like adults. And Taylor Taylor Twelman doesn't make basic points. Like he will often talk about Look at this movement from the center back. He takes three steps to his right, and that totally changes the dynamic of this play. Like, it's not like these are sometimes very esoteric. You have to be in the weeds about soccer, where sometimes even I I didn't play the game at any high level. So there's language and jargon that sometimes gets used. Where I, I don't even understand. I've been watching the game for more than a decade, and I don't understand it. So when Taylor Twelman can explain things that are happening in the game that are the reason why it's happening, that's ultimately what you're there to do. Another point I would make, and... I understand it's another pay service. I know soccer fans and people in general are getting a little subscriptioned out, and I get it. But one thing you do get from CBS is you get every Champions League game. So Mm -hmm. you do not need to have cable. You don't need to have a kind of catch-all YouTube TV type, you know, subscription additionally. Mm -hmm. You can still get every game for what is it, four ninety nine, five, six bucks a month, which I, I can appreciate more and more because what I wish we had for the Premier League, for example, was the ability to pay for like Peacock or whatever the, mm-hmm. you know, the new NBC thing is and get every Premier League game live. But you can't. You're only going to get 175 live games that are mm-hmm. not available elsewhere. And so you have to have NBCSN and... 
that means you're going to be spending more. If we could get to a point where, I'll be honest, I only care about soccer at this point. (laughs) Maybe I'm not representative, but if I could just pay like for streaming services and get every game from a league, I think that would be great. And we're not there yet on, on all of that. And it doesn't mean that you can't, as a network CBS, like, and they, it sounds like, you know, they plan to put stuff on big CBS in the future, but like, you can still just get all the games on CBS all access, which I like. Right. You kind of want both options, either it's all on cable or it's all on streaming, but it's not both. Right. Right. And I think, the legacy media companies are still trying to feed at both troughs, right? I mean, the cable companies have had, an ex- or the cable networks have had an extraordinary business model where they've been able to charge for, they, they get money for every cable subscriber plus the money on ads, right? That is sustained billion dollar growth. ESPN at one point was Disney's most profitable division for exactly this reason. And so you still do want to have your toes in that water while also recognizing that the world is changing and Disney announced this week that they have 58 million subscribers to Disney Plus. That's their new profit center. So they know that the future is streaming and at some point we will be in an all streaming place, but you kind of want to be able to maintain both. And that's where ultimately the customer is the one who has to maintain a cable subscription plus four and five streaming services, never mind your entertainment options of Netflix and Hulu and things like that. So I get it. And I think ultimately, we've talked about it before, soccer has been the guinea pig for this stuff. So it's kind of, from our standpoint, we're the ones that are that have to subscribe to the most, that our dollars are, are most wanted at the moment from the streaming companies. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the Bundesliga, which is going on ESPN Plus starting this next season, all of their games are going to be on ESPN Plus. They're not going to put them mm-hmm. on as far as I know, and that can always change. I, I think I think like they have plans to have like three games on the ESPN channel. Although I think in like Italy, for instance, they were only going to have they're like nine of the ten in a match day were going to be on ESPN Plus. But during lockdown, they're like, well, Serie A is on, so we're just going to throw it on ESPN two uh, because it, it's just programming that we can live sports that we can put on the middle of the day. So like for example, the FA Cup is supposed to be an ESPN Plus exclusive, where it's only on ESPN Plus. But they've thrown some games on TV just because why not we can you know fill out a morning schedule with an with an FA Cup semifinal but i think and this is why you know people were mad that the FA Cup final was only on ESPN plus but to really satisfy this as a value proposition for wanting to pay for it, you have to put some things exclusively on there that would merit, for example, airtime ahead of bass fishing on ESPN2. But you have to make it exclusive in order to make the six ninety nine or whatever it is a month worth it. The last thing I'll say is I asked McManus if now that they've got two soccer properties on CBS All Access and other CBS destinations uh, in UEFA and NWSL, were they considering other soccer properties? And his response was, we'll look at every property as it comes up for bid. We're open for business. So that was interesting to me to see Mm -hmm. if they might actually really try and become even more of a hub for soccer fans by getting more rights in the way that ESPN Plus has. And the one that sticks out to me is MLS. Mm. You know, MLS... uh, will be available. The new contract starts in 2023. And uh, I'd be curious to see if, if CBS bids for that and, and whether U.S. national team games will be bundled with those. I guess La Liga might be a possibility. I could see, I know they're with Bian, mm-hmm. uh, 
which was a mystifying decision to me to extend with BN, except because I guess BN is, it, it's global. And so yeah. favors were done. The best thing for La Liga in the United States would be to be on a much more easy to reach platform mm-hmm. than be in sports. I do wonder, like, I've always wondered if you put Barcelona, Real Madrid, Classicos on C- big CBS, what kind of audience you could get for that, that would seem to be a pretty good fit for CBS. And, and, and I always thought as well about having El Clasico's on over-the-air Univision as well, because that's the other audience they lose out on is, you know, Spanish speakers. Yeah. From, like, they need to have be in sports. So, and they still draw massive numbers for Clasicos. You wonder if they were on over the air, how much bigger they, they could even be. But yeah, to me, it's just about gobbling up tonnage, right? Because ESPN Plus, they offer you, for example, like the championship. You watch the promotion playoff final and uh, congratulations to Fulham to being promoted to the Premier League. But that's just like, it's an example of on a Tuesday afternoon, oh, I can go to ESPN Plus. And you always want to have something. So like for me, it would be something like, this might sound ridiculous, but like the Scottish Premiership, right? Because you're not going to watch your average Aberdeen-Kilmarnock game, but when it's the old firm derby and it's Celtic against Rangers, maybe you can get someone to, you know, on a Saturday morning, oh, CBS All Access has this huge game that's on right now. So I think that's what you want. It's like that reminder every when there aren't Champions League games and when, you know, there are breaks in NWSL, you want to have kind of like once a month or once every two weeks, like a reminder, oh, CBS All Access has X that is worth checking in on and so I, I do think that's important the the MLS point is really interesting to me as well because I do think as we talk about MLS needing to increase their television revenue ratings don't appear to be a way that they're going to right it's just it's been hard for them to crack it they need to have a hundred huge signings in order to really break through and we don't know if they're prepared to to invest that kind of money I think they can really increase their rights fees if they went all streaming the question is as we've talked about Soccer is not a mature market in this country. How much are you slowing the growth if, let's say, every single MLS game, including MLS Cup Final, was on Amazon Prime, right? right? And maybe Amazon would, you know, multiply the current rights fees by a factor of five, and that would be a huge boon to the clubs. But have you killed the exclusive? Have you killed part of the growth of the league? So I, I do kind of wonder how much they're going to try and balance, maybe maintaining one or two national partners. But full streaming to me is what makes sense if they really want to increase revenue. All right. Good discussion, man. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Yeah, happy to do it. The MLS is back. Tournament continues. And while you can't cheer from your home stadium, you can win a stadium in a box. Thanks to Heineken 00. Share a photo or video of how you hashtag cheers from home on Twitter for a chance to win a package full of beer gear, stadium eats, and a real stadium seat. The MLS Stadium Experience delivered to your front door. There are 23 packages from 23 U.S. stadiums, but only one lucky winner per team. Must be 21 plus. To learn more and scores from free Heineken 00, visit HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. That's HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. Heineken 00. Now you can. Now, here's my interview with Pablo Maurer. Our guest now is Pablo Maurer, who's a staff writer covering soccer for The Athletic. He has a fantastic news story out this week that you should check out. It's called George Best in the U.S., a reality more unbelievable than the myth. Pablo is, in my opinion, the best magazine-style soccer writer working in the U.S. today. Pablo, congratulations, and thanks for joining me. 
I think I said this last time I came on your podcast. You should start charging <laughs> charging for these inter- introductions because they're they're always pretty flattering. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but you know, I'm gonna make that the outgoing be- uh, message on my voicemail. I appreciate that. <laughs> Lots to talk about here. I feel like we should be doing this interview late at night in a bar over some brown liquor. Instead, we're on a Zoom call at 11 a.m. on a weekday. Um, You have made a habit now of writing terrific long-read stories about historical figures and moments in American soccer. Uh, That includes your piece on Johan Cruyff and the NASL, the one on the infamous photo shoot of the U.S. men's national team before World Cup 2002. And now this one on one of the sport's most famous figures, George Best, and his time in the U.S. What was the genesis of the George Best story? Well, I've always been sort of, I mean, I've always been fascinated with with Best in the way that most people are because he's such a complex human being, uh, so so troubled, uh, you know, achieved so much success so early in his career and then became this sort of soccer nomad, you know, but but really more than anything, I was just sort of shocked that more hadn't been written on his time in the U.S. I mean, you know, even Cruyff, because I think Cruyff is a sort of, I guess, kind of mythical figure to soccer purists. You know, there there have been multiple pieces written even just on his time in D.C., which is um, what I wrote. I think mine was all deeper, but it certainly wasn't the first person to touch it. With Best, it was just like, I think I put this in the lead. I mean, you know, his time in the U.S., because I think it was maybe the beginning of this drawn out you know, nomad phase is just sort of viewed as, as maybe like a frivolous kind of afterthought. But, you know, I, I was always shocked because he was here for five years. He scored, you know, 50 some odd goals for three teams and, uh, you know, played at a pretty high level given the wear and tear on, you know, his body and his mind and everything else. So, no, I just, you know, half the time, Grant, it's like, I think you probably feel this way too about pieces you've, you've written. I, I just wanted to learn more about it you know, and just happens to be my job to write. So (laughs) I was just like, well, we should probably do something with this, you know? (laughs) So how many interviews did you do for this story? And how do you go about finding these people? I did uh, 20 interviews um, of which maybe I used half of in the piece. Uh, I want to say that the, you know, the trans, the transcription of all the interviews was, was nearly 40,000 words. Finding people can be, you know, sometimes it can be as easy as, you know, for example, Chris Dangerfield, who I interviewed, does color commentary for the earthquakes. So it's as easy as getting a hold of somebody at the team. Um, you know, a lot of the more sort of obscure guys who've, who've drifted into the background, um, you know, mostly American players in the NASL. Um, I lean heavily on on David Kilpatrick, who's a, a the New York Cosmos team historian who sort of followed that team for decades. A guy like Dave Brett, who I also wrote about, who's sort of this guy who just collected old VHS um, cassettes and, you know, he's sort of like the the quote unquote official sort of, um, you know, video historian of, of us soccer Um, guys like that. And then also, you know, the best way, and again, you probably already realize this is once you get a hold of one of these guys, they all stay in touch, you know? So, you know, Bobby McElhinden, who is George's best, best friend who we moved here with immediately was like, Oh, you know, let me get you in touch with, uh, with Ken as agent and with Stone. So, you know, I think once once people realize that you're you're doing interesting work, they're, they're kind of eager to participate. George Best had written an autobiography that did include his time in the US. What were you seeking to do with this story? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you read Blessed, 
um, just his his autobiography, he is pretty introspective and self-reflective and kind of brief, brutally honest about his troubles while he was here. But even in that book, there's just not much, you know? Um, so much of the book is about his childhood and, you know, it's obviously glory days at Man United, um, his time playing for Northern Ireland, you know? So even that kind of left me wanting, you know? And, and also I think, you know, this is still true in MLS, man and probably will be true till the end of time in this country. One of the really unique things about soccer in this country is you have guys like George Best or Dave Beckham or Thierry Henry, whoever else, who come here. And then you have all these sort of ancillary, you know, the other players who just all of a sudden now, you know, it's a, a dude who was just at a junior college last year who is now on the same pitch as the European player of the year. And, and that to me is fascinating. Um, there, there's a story in the, that didn't make the piece where I think it was uh, Gary Etherington, who's his teammate in Seattle. He said, yeah, you know, this is how big this guy was. We're driving along. He's given us, a, so he used to give us, you know, rides to training all the time, which then in itself is crazy. You know, this guy was just like picking people up, hopefully not drunk, driving them to training. But um, he said, yeah, we're, you know, listening to the radio and the you know news comes on. And it says, oh, you know, John Lennon was shot outside the, the Dakota apartments in New York. And he said Best was driving. He just um, turned to, you know, one of his other teammates and said, huh, I better give Yoko a call. And Etherington says he laughed. And then uh, Best was just like, what? I, I mean, I'm just going to call her. You know, so like that's, this is like how, how big of a human being he was, especially in the UK. You know, I mean, they called him the fifth Beatle when he was playing there almost, obviously, because of his haircut and his celebrity. So just stuff like that's fascinating to me, you know, so it's like, it's just great to, to talk to old teammates and sort of like pull stories like that out of them, you know? Yeah. I mean, in terms of a deeper understanding, what sort of deeper understanding did you get about George Best by doing this that you hadn't known before? Well, one, I, I mean, I would say that I didn't really realize that um, I, I'm convinced he was deeply depressed. I mean, in addition to the, the alcoholism, because you talk to his teammates, they all use the same word and it's melancholy. And that to me was, was pretty fascinating. And I think obviously if you just look at the trajectory of his career, you know, when you get everything, when you win everything by the time you're 21, where do you go from there? You know, um, you, you know, in a lot of ways it takes a very particular and strange kind of human being to, to want to keep going after that, you know, to want to do it again. Um, so that was, that was interesting to me. Also, I, you know, just the, the nature of his alcoholism. I mean, I think there's a, Best has a reputation for being this like wild party animal who, you know, slept with two Miss Worlds, this and the other thing. When in reality, I mean, you talk to his teammates in the U.S. and they'd say, no, you don't understand. He would just, you know, sort of out of nowhere disappear just to drink alone. And he just disappeared for two or three days. You know, there was a story I told in the piece where his teammates in Fort Lauderdale said, you know, we, we were literally at a bar. And George turned to us at 11 p.m. and said, okay, you know, I'm going to go home. I'll see you at training tomorrow. And then they didn't see him for three days, you know. So it was just a thing. It was sort of like Black Cloud would come over him and he would just go off the rails, you know. Often, oftentimes when things were going really incredibly well for him, you know. There was a crazy image that was in this story and you write about it when he joined the L.A. Aztecs <laughs> um, where at the press conference – they the team literally handcuffed him to a a woman a model and the whole bit was that if that was the way they would keep him in los angeles uh sort of hard to imagine that taking place today yeah. uh, yep. <laughs> like um 
It seems like offensive, of offensive even by 70s standards in some way. I mean, like, my God. My God. Yeah. Um, like, I assume you wrote this um, during the and reported during the pandemic. Uh-huh. Yep. Was it extra challenging I like to be doing these interviews by phone and Zoom, I presume, and like not be able to go to the bar in LA that he owned that's still there? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, Brooks Peck, my editor, and I, you know, legitimately talked about this. It's frustrating because I think, you know, I'm not trying to be self-congratulatory, but I think the piece came out pretty well. I also think it could have been a lot better you know, if you, you get people in their living rooms, I could have shot portraits, you know, you could have gone to all these places, you know, that, that all of his, you know, ex-teammates reference. I think, you know, it's strange also, I was talking to a friend the other day and I said that, you know, this, this whole pandemic has just on all of us obviously been pretty challenging mental health wise. And it's an interesting thing to do to literally lose yourself for a month in a story where you're writing about this guy who had all these mental health issues battles with alcoholism every interview you do is you know his ex-teammates are like full of joy but also deeply sad saddened by the fact that he's not here anymore and some of them I think saddened but you know maybe thinking they didn't do enough to to keep him from sort of slipping away so it's been a dark month it's been a dark month great <laughs> <laughs> shit man I got the piece written though um, it's all better <laughs> <laughs> um I mean, you're you're well known also for your your incredible project, Abandoned States, where you got old photographs of thriving resorts in the Poconos and, and blended them with present day photographs that you had done of the, the same place. What's the source of your interest in histories like that? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I guess I'd probably just have to, to think it came from my, my parents who are both that way, you know, um, but I do have... You know what, though, man, when it comes to soccer in particular, it's like always been sort of fascinated by this. Um, and I think MLS is guilty of this, too, these days. I think in this country, especially because maybe the game is sort of a niche thing still. Sorry, please don't blow up my mentions for that. Soccer is still a niche sport. Um, you know, I think there's there's you have to do the hard work when it comes to history of like preserving your history as it's happening. And with the NASL and even the ASL, you know, um, which, which, you know, predated it, there's, it's just been one of those things where it's not old enough to be like incredibly historically relevant and it's too new to be relevant. You know, it's too recent to be relevant. Also it's caught in this like in between period. And honestly, man, a couple of years ago, I just thought to myself, look, I should just write one or two pieces a year and, and record all these interviews. And, you know, I spent shoot, man, like a, a few, years ago, I did, I want to say 30 interviews for an oral history of the Washington diplomats that I haven't even done, you know what I mean? And, and most of the reason I did it was just to, to get these guys on tape. I mean, a lot of these guys are dying, honest to God, you know, you, you, especially the way they lived in the sixties and seventies and, you know, nobody took care of themselves, you know? So it is one of those things where if somebody doesn't do it, it's just going to slip away. You know, um, the, the recorded history of the game in this country before like 1960 is even more non-existent you know it's all just newspaper clippings basically and that's completely insane to me you can't let it um get get that way again i think just to, to tack onto this i tweeted something i tweeted basically once a year which is that major league soccer which is really good at sort of designating you know sort of inserting itself into its clubs operations should 
just say, hey, like every club has to spend, I don't know, $7,500 a year, pay some archivist to just do, you know, five, 10 hours of work a week, whatever it is, um, to do the work, to get, you know, to, to build a player database, to, you know, find old news coverage, to do, you know, preserve their history because the way it stands right now, man, and you know this too, right now it's just like two or three people at the league office that have it all up here. And, you know, hopefully somebody <laughs> thinks to like ask them to put it all on paper too, because it's a little terrifying to me, you know, and some clubs are better than others at that. There are clubs that are doing that, but you know. It's interesting. Cause I mean, as I was reading this story, you quote Clive Toy in the George Best story, you know, he's the former New York Cosmos general manager, did that for a number of teams who had tried, tried and failed to bring George Best to the Cosmos in, in mm -hmm. 1973. Clive Toy is 88 now. Um, and it made me think, I remember the last couple times I interviewed Walter Barr, who was the last surviving member of the 1950 U.S. World Cup team that beat England, that we could lose him soon. And we did in 2018. I mean, are, are you sort of, thinking about that when you're interviewing some of the older people who are involved in the old NASL? Um, and, and is that going to guide potentially future stories? Oh, of course. I mean, uh, Clive is, Clive's a great example. I mean, Clive, thankfully Clive has done um, a bevy of interviews, but I've, sometimes I think to myself, even you can look at the history of the cosmos, for example, sometimes I think even those stories are sort of cyclical and they're like, you know, writers read other writers as stories. They all touch on the same eight things. And in a way to me, it's more interesting just to get somebody on the phone and just let them talk, you know? Um, and Clive, I'm sure somebody will do that. And some people have already done that, you know, David Kilpatrick, the Cosmos historian has done an excellent job, obviously kind of unpacking um, that club's history, but yeah, for sure. I mean, it, you know, it's not just like, you know, I can get a hold of, you know, X, Y, Z player, these sort of like players who had more notoriety in the, in the NASL, you know, I just, like Ray Hudson's a good example, or Rodney Marsh, you know, both of whom I spoke to for this best piece. But a lot of times, I mean, the better interviews are just these young American players who might've made four appearances in two years in the league and then bounced out. Um, their memories are almost like richer half the time because there's, it was a more essential time in their lives. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's not just guys like Clive that are 88 now. I mean, you know, like I said, they're, they're players dying in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, certainly somebody's got to get this stuff down on paper. I'm just doing, a, I'm just doing some small part of that. You know, there's, there's a million stories. Honestly, I could, do a, I could do a weekly series. It would be a piece like this, but shorter. Um, I probably should. I think I just pitched myself on your podcast anyways. But, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just people have to keep writing these stories or else they're just going to fall by the wayside. Well, that's a question I got for you. Like, do you want to do a book project involving American soccer history? Um, is there some common theme you would want to, to focus on for that book? Or would you want to just maybe do an, a book anthology of stories like this one? Yeah. I mean, um, are, are you financing it or who's, who's, uh, who's picking it up? <laughs> are you? Not me, man. I got no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I would love to do that, but I just, uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. You know, I think my, uh, both my parents are authors and, you know, I saw them when I was a kid lose entire years of their lives to books. Lose is the wrong word, but it was just like my father would live in his office, you know, and, um, certainly like the economic realities of the world we live in might be a little different now than they were in like 1991, <laughs> you know? So like, 
Um, my priority is always going to be doing work for the site, you know, but that having been said, I mean, I'm sure maybe this is the way you treated um, your work around Beckham, you know, the best stuff, like um, I did those interviews and then, you know, I got the piece filed and I joked with Brooks that I just kept scheduling interviews. I mean, still have like multiple people to talk to next week because they replied and I just thought to myself, well, the story's so interesting. I'm just going to keep, even if it's just selfishly, um, compiling stuff, you know, and you never know who's going to give you some sort of gem, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would love to. You know, I was I was telling somebody the other day, like the you know this piece was ninety five hundred words, which is too long to begin with. It, it could have been three times that long. I mean, somebody could, you know, there's obviously all by himself. It's a great documentary on best thirty for thirty. Somebody could have done a documentary just as long on just his time at one team in the NASL, you know. So um, yeah, I'd love to go deeper. It's just. I don't know if anybody's listening and wants to pay me to do that, please reach out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in modern media, not too many publications would give you the time to report and write a story like this. How does that work with you and the athletic? How much time did they give you for this story? And, and how do you, you balance that? How much pressure do you have to be covering the day to day of DC United right now where you live? Yeah, I mean, I um, I did go to Brooks and Alex, my editors, uh, maybe three or four weeks ago and say, look, uh, you know, I've been sort of spinning my wheels in this best thing, but if you just cut me loose for like two or three weeks and just let it have, you know, it can be the only thing I'm doing, um, we'll get it quickly and it'll be really good. And, and really without hesitation, Brooks was like, just do it, you know, which is like you said, you know, it's, it's really near unheard of, honestly, in this sort of landscape. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, I still, I think I did three or four breaking news things and, you know, you, information still comes in and I'm not going to ignore it. Um, but, you know, the other thing, Grant, is like, I don't mean to prattle on about The Athletic, but um, the team that I work with, Sam, Felipe, Meg, Paul, uh, everybody, Jeff, you know, Alex Brooks, we, we all have sort of a collaborative mentality. So honestly, I can kind of think to myself, all right, well, I can tune out for two weeks and do this best thing. And I have these teammates that will kind of drag me along as far as the daily news goes. And a lot of those guys do a better job of that stuff than me anyways. Um, and that doesn't exist, I think, in a lot of modern newsrooms, put that in air quotes, you know, um, because, you know, most sites is just one soccer writer and sort of have to handle everything, you know. So now I'm completely, I don't think a piece like this would have really even happened at another website, you know, just logistically, you know? Yeah. And, and I say this, having worked at Sports Illustrated for 23 years, including under the new ownership there, which is taking a different approach. You know, that's the tradition of what Sports Illustrated used to be. But like my challenge in recent years was I always wanted to do in-depth magazine, traditional magazine style stories like this. And there were so many other demands whether it was for breaking news, short stuff written, video podcasts, all that stuff, that at a certain point in time, I realized that my boss is there. If I completely stopped writing long magazine style stories would not have complained. And, and so like, it's just hard to find that. Well, it's, it's also so, it's, it's so strange because that's what you're, that's what you made your name on. And that's what everybody, you know, if I think I can right. think of four or five of your stories, they're all features. You know what I mean? I, I feel like nobody remembers the, you know, Paul Tenorio at the, at, you know, at the athletic gave me a good piece of advice once, you know, 
if I get beaten to something by, you know, Goff or anybody else out there, it's, you know, it can be frustrating, especially when you've been chasing something. But he, Paul said, look, man, in a week, nobody remembers who broke a story. You know, it's like, just do, do good work and people remember that. And that's true. You know, SI, um, you know, I, there were two incredible pieces that SI did on George Best during his time in the NASL. I mean, just beautifully written. I was just reading this, um, this, I just pulled it up. This piece is like one of my all time favorite soccer pieces by Frank DeFord. And it's on the MISL on indoor soccer. Yes. It's called, it's called <laughs> show sex and suburbs. Um, and it is, it is, I'm, I'm going to put it on Twitter after, after I get off here because it is just so breathtakingly well-written and so full of color and character in the way that modern writing isn't, you know? So yeah, um, obviously you could do a whole other podcast on Sports Illustrated. I don't know if you're legally allowed to do that, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I've always enjoyed the SI Vault is a treasure trove of oh, yeah. Yeah. every magazine story in Sports Illustrated's history, at least until the last year or two. And, and to go back, there were so many great soccer stories, which is the equivalent of what I would do when I was a fact checker there starting in 1996. And like, I'd be there late at night at, at Time Inc. and I would go into the bound volumes and and look at uh, Pete Axthelm writing on Pele in like 1960 something, you know, yeah. or or Clive Gammon writing about the next Pele, this guy Diego Maradona in like 1980. Um, it was just amazing stuff, and I just wish more places still did it. Like my last couple of years there, I had on my own to force through like my story on the Reina family and Geo and what they went through. And, and I could only do it because like it was a local story. I like, and you know, even just going out to do Jermaine Jones in January, I had to tie that to a, a, a news trip. So yeah, yeah. anyway, anyway, I mean, like, I, I will say, I will say, on, on my wall right now, there's an issue of Sports Illustrated from 74, and I interviewed the, it's Bob Rigby, he was the, the, yeah. for the Philadelphia Adams. He was the first, uh, I want to say, first soccer player ever to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Um, the, the story's called Soccer Goes American. It's very good. So again, I mean, it's, it's the OG, man. I mean, it's like invaluable. And, and every, every, every soccer piece from the 70s and 80s that's in that magazine was beautifully, insightfully written. And I'm sorry, the 90s and 2000s as well. I'm sorry, Grant. I didn't mean to <laughs> exclude you from that, but you know. <laughs> so you and I haven't had the chance yet to talk about your blockbuster story from several months ago on the infamous U.S. Men's National Team World Cup photo shoot from World Cup 2002. Um, could you fill in folks first who may not know about it? I don't know what's wrong with them uh, <laughs> on what the story was about. All right. So in 2002, obviously the the U.S. men were trying to make a splash to coming off that horrible World Cup in '98, and they got an offer to do a photo shoot for New York Times Magazine, which they immediately accepted because it's you know huge exposure. But um, the Times wanted to do something different. They wanted to sort of use the players as fashion models, which um, you know already there are red flags. I think <laughs> but, you know like what resulted was this now infamous photo shoot um in particular there's one photograph of uh landon donovan drinking water out of a water fountain maybe a little seductively um <laughs> that has gone down in history and been blown up and brought into stadiums and used as tifos and you know the subject of a running joke but you know like here's a good example of why i'd write that story i the way people have spoken about those photos 
always made me think. It was always like, this is a little homophobic. Like, like let's be realistic. What, what these fans are saying is like, this looks gay or something like that. And um, I wanted to dig into that. So uh, thankfully I tracked down the original photographer who was uh, a pretty well-renowned uh, uh, you know, fashion photographer who, who happens to be gay himself. And he shared the exact same you know, thoughts. He sort of got his own blowback for the shoot. And I spoke to the players who would, who would speak to me. Landon wouldn't speak to me for it. Neither would Brian McBride. I'm just going to name those people now because I'm still, I'm still hurt. You know? But uh, what resulted, yeah, was uh, maybe more of a sociology piece than a soccer piece, piece you know? but um, I, think it, I think it did pretty well. I mean, I, I feel like there were some pretty intense topics there, some really meaningful topics, like you mentioned. I mean, like I was in... South Korea covering the team when that photo shoot came out the day of. And I remember Casey Keller said something to the effect of, and he was making a joke, he thought, uh, said, I, I think we just increased our popularity in the San Francisco area. That's in, that's in the New York Times piece from that, you know, piece did a, uh, the Times did a piece on the reaction of the players to the photo shoot. And, that quotes in there. And yeah, I read that and I was just like, my God, you know, like, <laughs> this is, that's not great. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, it was it, certainly there's like stuff in there um, that's not soccer related, which is, I think what makes it an interesting story, you know? And I think the, the players themselves, I mean, you can even, yeah, I had conversations with Landon about the photo. He didn't want to speak on the record for the piece. Um, and Landon's obviously a great guy, you know, but the fact that Landon or Brian McBride, or Pablo Mastrini, didn't want to speak for the piece, even after all their teammates had, and uh, you know, even though it was associated with a, a pretty reputable outlet, I think speaks volumes to the fact that even to those guys, it's still meaningful in some way or another, you know, maybe not in a great way, you know? Yeah, no, it's uh, just a, a really memorable piece. I'm glad you did it. And, and yeah. do you, did you post that you have, like the photographer ended up giving you the negatives to the, the water fountain shoot? He, he gave me the contact sheet, which is, you know, the, all the negative strips blown up onto a, a piece of photo paper. Um, so I have like 10 different versions of the water fountain photo, <laughs> which I definitely framed. It's definitely on my wall. Um, and yeah, I mean, he was, you know, it was a bit like archaeology and the, the fact that like that guy has done thousands of photo shoots since then. And, you know, after our interview, when he realized I was sort of serious about digging into the issues around it. He literally went to his office and spent an entire day and I got a text message where he was like, oh my God. And he just sends me a cell phone photo of all the original negatives, all that stuff, which he put, he put in a FedEx mailer and sent me to digitize, you know. And in those, a particular interest is photograph of Brad Friedel that's never been seen before. Brad Friedel was part of that photo shoot. Um, but I still just, uh, well, that's a perfect example. You know, I spoke to Brad Friedel for the piece. He was sort of a very jovial and laughing about it. And then I was like, but I didn't tell him that I knew he was part of the piece. At, that, at some point in the interview, I was like, well, so Brad, I gotta tell you, you know, I have the original negatives and I see the photograph of yours that's in here. And I mean, the line just went dead silent for like five or six seconds, you know? So even now, years later, it's sort of people have these feelings about this photo shoot, you know? So yeah, one of these days I might get drunk and just throw that up on Twitter, see what happens. <laughs> well, a couple of random things here. The next time I go to Cary, North Carolina. I was last there for the NWSL final. Wish I had known that the the fountain it was there, which you've now yeah. put a, a plate on. Uh, I will go see that as a pilgrimage next time in the area. Um, also, when I ran for FIFA president in 2011, 
there was a lot of like international media coverage and there was some like Brazilian paper newspaper that posted, they thought it was a photo of me, but it was actually Casey Keller from the times photo. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of weird. That's, that's great. Um, that's great. You should have yeah. just rolled with it. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so you wrote about Wayne Rooney when he was in DC with DC United but do you think modern day MLS has enough larger than life story subjects like the old NASL did? I do. I just think that um, these guys are, are smart now and, you know, TMZ and all these other sort of uh, sites exist. And also what, what is socially acceptable to put out there in the press has changed. I mean, with, with Wayne, for example, has been gone long enough. Like, you know, i run into him at bars. You see him out. I mean, you see there's stories you can't tell. You know what I mean? Um, and none of them are, to be clear, none of them are like, most of them are just hilarious. You know, none of them are problematic um, or, or, you know, they're, they're the type of stories people tell about George Best. The problem is that, you know, I, I spoke via email to um, Graham Jones, who's a LA Times sports writer back in the day. Um, and he, he covered best in person. And he told me, you know, in an email, he said, yeah, you know, I do remember, I don't remember a lot, but I remember, for example, a week or two after he got to the Aztecs, he just took me and another reporter out for a beer, you know, to do a story. We just sat there and sort of got drunk and chatted. And, you know, even that is sort of like, not beyond belief, because that stuff still happens occasionally, but it's just like, it was completely normal back then, you know? Um, that to me, I mean, as for the, the Cruyff piece, I spoke to John Feinstein, who, literally just got lunch with Johan Cruyff all the time or, you know, sort of was his like sounding board or and, and these things that that dynamic doesn't exist anymore. You know, even players who want to speak, most of them are coached out of it by clubs, PR people, agents. Um, and you end up like an MLS with just like three or four guys who are actually outwardly interesting, you know, and then a lot of guys I think who want to speak, but are just afraid of what the reaction might be this out of the other thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I will say this, man, MLS will never, the NASL is just so one of a kind. I just know it'll never happen again. I mean, it would be like having Messi, Ronaldo, I mean, like literally every global mega celebrity and player in the same league, you know, two thirds of them on the same team. Um, it'll never happen again because people don't have the money. I mean, the Cosmos are a billion dollar team now, you know what I mean? Um and again, it's easy for modern soccer fans to write it off as this anomaly or, you know, oh, the quality of play was terrible. I mean, Grant, that's another thing that I learned in this piece. You watch all these, like, this sort of grainy old game footage. Best was the best player on the, on the field in every single game he played, even when he was hungover. He, he had, like, a, an inside cut and a Matthews touch that I've never, like, one of his teammates said it was, like, watching, telling, hearing a comedian tell the same joke over and over again and you still laugh because it's that convincing. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's huge quality in that league. And it's just, it's, it's reductive and stupid when I hear modern fans be like, oh, it's just, you know, like whatever. And you could, you could, you could pick George Best up and put him in an MLS game and he would, he, he would murder people. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so, so yeah. Um, I think the NASL is one of a kind. MLS will never have the five best players in the world or something like that all at the same time, even if it's when they're, 30 or 31, you know, it's just not going right. to happen. Yeah. Do you want to write anything on Pele or Giorgio Canalia, or does that get too much into the area of the movie once in a lifetime about the New York Cosmos? 
I'd definitely write something on Canalia. It's actually something that that's been bouncing around in my head. Um, Palais, I'm less interested in just, I, it just doesn't speak to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he's more of a, a commercial figure at this point or more, you know, certainly a lot has been written on him. Um, but I think, you know, Once in a Lifetime is a great film, but even that is just sort of like a little reductive. And I mean, you have to be that way when you make a movie, obviously, you know, um, I feel like if you do long form journalism or, or a book, um, you can weave in things that are more complex. You know, you don't necessarily have to be to adhere so much to to making it like a a sexy sort of like overproduced kind of thing. You know, so no, I'd absolutely write write about the cosmos. Um, if only to anger my uh, my colleague Sam Stagecall, who just completely hates any time I mention the cosmos and say that they're. <laughs> The, 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 if you ever talk to Sam, the thing you can say to make him the most angry is tell him that the Cosmos are still the most valuable brand in American soccer. <laughs> tell him that and just watch, watch the blood fill, fill his head. You, know? <laughs> um, you had been on my old podcast a while back and you were still working at least part-time as a high-end mechanic. Are, uh -huh. are you still doing any of that? Uh, when I went full-time with The Athletic, I definitely, um, I basically took my tools and rented out a little space in a shop uh, in PG County, Maryland, uh, that I, you know, I do work from time to time, sort of like on a, uh, an appointment basis, but, you know, only on the weekends or at night. Uh, I just don't really have time anymore to dedicate myself to that. Uh, I found, you know, for a while I was, I was freelancing and working full time at a shop. And I found that, like, I didn't do either thing particularly well. You know, I did them both well, but neither one of them exceptionally well. And um, it was just easier for me to sort of pick one of these things in this case writing and try and sort of put all my energy into it but you know man you work on cars for 20 25 years it becomes sort of deeply embedded in your identity and who you are um proud to have done that i i might you know if you look at the media landscape i might end up doing that full-time again at any moment right so um so certainly like i feel it's a privilege and i feel lucky to be able to even do that a day a week or something like that you know like right now i'm i'm three weeks into a project on a 74 911 that that honestly should should take a day and a half you know but in my new reality i can only work on it a couple of hours a time every few days you know so i don't know what do you drive in these days i drive um uh it's weird i'm so used to typing it all in all caps on twitter <laughs> A 1984 Dodge Shelby Turbo Rampage. It's a it's like a car pickup truck hybrid, like an El Camino, but smaller. I uh, put a huge ass turbo on it, so it's a terrifyingly fast car to drive. It's a really confusing car. Like people, a lot of times people pull up next to me in traffic and ask me if it's real. Like, hey man, is that thing real? <laughs> like it's uh, might just be a like some sort of redneck apparition. Um, and then I have a an older like an 80s Corvette, which was just my dream car when I was a little kid. So that's more of my sort of daily driver. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I used to have a bunch of cars, but I had to sell, sell a few of them. Um, I had to sell a few of them to make the leap to writing full time. So <laughs> whatever. <laughs> no, no resentment Pop in my voice <laughs> Pablo Maurer is a staff writer covering soccer for The Athletic. You should read his news story, George Best in the U.S., a reality more unbelievable than the myth. Pablo, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, anytime, man. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. 
I'd like to thank Pablo Maurer, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of our partner, The Total Soccer Show, for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.